The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about healthcare investing. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, who has been following the latest news in COVID vaccines and treatments, healthcare policy, and much more. Welcome, Josh. So glad to have you back on Barron's Live. Good to talk with you. So let's begin, as we usually do, with a COVID update. After two years, and I was thinking today, almost two years of Barron's live calls on the subject, it's good to see COVID finally easing up. We get to talk about a lot more these days. Give us the state of play. Yeah, you know, look, in the U.S. right now, things are looking pretty good. I mean, cases are down. Last I looked, uh, nearly 70% um, over the last two weeks. Hospitalizations are down. ICU hospitalizations are down. And deaths also are down in the U.S. twelve percent over the last two weeks, and and you know, as we know, deaths is a trailing indicator of, uh, uh, and and so you see the decline in deaths come later, and now we're really seeing the decline in deaths after the Omicron wave, so that's really good. You know, the debate now I think is whether this is the end of the pandemic, and and um, uh, we've, there's been some public statements in the past few days from from Dr. Fauci, from the Moderna CEO, CEO saying that sort of the full-blown phase of the pandemic is nearing an end. But there is, uh, you know, a cloud on the horizon, which is this um, sort of uh, uh, other version of Omicron. It's a little hard to... Hard oh, to, please. To Are you serious? <laughs> well, no, look, I mean, so 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 uh, Omicron is a, is a, is a variant. Um, there are a number of sublinear lineages or sort of, uh, of, of versions of this variant, the one that we've had here and that has been dominant is called BA1. There's another one called BA2 that now accounts for about 20% of Omicron cases worldwide. And over the past couple of days, WHO officials have been making the case, uh, you know, this is a more transmissible, transmissible version, not as severe. Um, they're, they're just saying it, it's not it's not over. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't let our guard down. So that that's the debate that's happening right now. I think that's a fair debate. It's not never a good time to get complacent. But with COVID in retreat, at least, the economy is starting to open up. And with that, there's been a lot of debate about lifting restrictions on socializing, on masks and things like that. You've been writing about all of us, excuse me, about all of that. And well, we can't go into it state by state or community by community. Give us the big picture view of what's happening. Yeah, so this is a, we did a feature about this, what was it, like a week and a half ago at this point. Um, you know, th- there are, there, there's been a growing case made, not, not by anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers, but by public health officials who have been some of the most, um, you know, prominent media, media figures talking about uh, COVID over the last two years, um, calling for a very quick end to mask mandates, school masking, and, you know, other mitigation measures in the U.S. as Omicron winds down. And um, their, their, their argument is, I mean, it varies from person to person, but, you know, they're arguing essentially we need to take advantage of this moment while we have it. This may not be, this may not last. There might be future surges. We might need to, to return 
these mitigation measures, but right now things are looking better in the U.S. than they have in a long time, and we we need to give people a break. Um, and so that's the case, and it seems to be having a big effect. You know, you've seen a lot of states lifting their mask mandates. One thing that has not happened is the CDC has not changed its guidance on indoor masking or on um, school masking. Um, and you know, there are I think a number of jurisdictions that likely won't make a change until. Uh, the CDC makes a change. Um, whether or not that's the right decision is not, you know, hard to say. And, and then that's that's the debate. Um, you know, w- one important point here is that there are a number of European countries that have lifted COVID restrictions in recent weeks, and that's been very dramatic. You know, um, some of those countries have had limits on large gatherings. Some of those countries have banned concerts. Some of those countries have required that bars close at a certain hour. There is nothing like that in the U.S. In most of the U.S. right now, you can do basically any, anything you want as though there were no pandemic. Um, so I think I think part of, of what these people are calling for, I mean, certainly school masking is is one thing that, that does exist in, in large parts of the country. Um, and there are indoor masks mandates that, that remain in a number of states. But really, I think what these people are calling for is is sort of an attitudinal shift and, an ex, and, and sort of a... Uh, an acceptance that we're in a, a different period, at least for the next number of months. But that, but there's a live debate here, and and, and it's been it's developed over the last few days, um, even in a number of directions. And I, I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Although I will see it say it does seem as though there is a growing sense um, that uh, at least right now we're in a pretty good period, and, and and that we should, you know, behave a little bit differently than we were behaving a month ago. And we're seeing it a bit in um, spending patterns in terms mm-hmm. of restaurants and travel. There's a more of a sense of openness, and our economics reporters have been writing about that. Yeah, exactly. So on the vaccine front, let's move to that. Pfizer recently suffered a regulatory setback concerning vaccines for children. Tell us what happened and what it might mean for Pfizer and Pfizer's shares. Yeah, and I, you know, I think our listeners probably aware of this, it was pretty big news on Friday. Um, the, the FDA was going to hold an advisory committee hearing this past Tuesday about whether to extend um, the authorization for Pfizer's vaccine to include children aged six months up until uh, five years. And they postponed that. And, you know, when we talked about this a number of weeks ago on, on this on this podcast, we talked about how unusual it was that the FDA was going to consider this vaccine or, or this expansion for this age group. And that's because, as we'd said, you know, the trial data they have right now is for uh, two doses, but Pfizer and BioNTech, it's, 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 um, its partner, had said in December that at least in, in certain age cohorts within that broader age group, uh, the, the antibody response that they were seeing after two doses was not good enough. It wasn't up to the level that, that they saw um, at, at two doses in teenagers um, and young adults, and that's because they'd used a much smaller dose. Um, and so Pfizer decided to do a third dose in this population. However, third dose data is not available yet. So they were going to consider two doses for um, six months old, up you know up until five years old, uh, as part of an expected three-dose series, but without any data on three doses. It's very weird. It seemed very unusual. I personally was surprised that they were doing it. And in fact, now they're not doing it. And what the FDA said on Friday is that... Um, uh, they're going to wait until they have the three dose data, the third dose data, and that third dose data is not going to come until April. So that really pushes about the, back the timeline for this age group by about two months. Now, there's I think two important things to note here. One is, you know, I think some of the conversations that we were talking about a moment ago about you know 
ending masking in certain situations, lifting restrictions was predicated, at least in part, on um, this age group being able to get vaccinated. So it wasn't didn't entirely hinge on it, but I, that was certainly part of the conversation. And, you know, you can think a little bit about what impact um, this delay is going to have on that debate. Um, and separately, you know, uh, there was a press call on Friday where a number of reporters asked Peter Marks, who's the sort of vaccines guy at the FDA. Um, we've spoken about him a bunch in the past. He was yes. asked, he was asked, you know, what new information do you have? Why did you, you know, what was different between when you decided to, you know, hold this advisory committee hearing and now when you're postponing it. And he basically said he'd gotten a lot of data from Pfizer um, because, you know, the trial is ongoing now. Uh, and, and Omicron meant there were a lot of kids who got sick and there were a lot of kids who got sick in the trial. And as such, a lot of, uh, you know, data came in um, recently um, as part of this trial. He didn't say that it showed it wasn't working, but he certainly said, I saw the data and now we want to wait for those three. So, you know, I think you, we, we, we don't know, but I think we can imagine that at least some of what he saw suggested to him that it would really be better to wait until they have the three dose data. I should say, I spoke with uh, uh, the chief scientific officer advisor a number of days before that announcement. I believe I talked to him a week ago, Tuesday, and he at the time seemed, you know, very, very bullish on, on the, uh, the childhood vaccine and, and, and thought that the data was going to be good enough. So. How did Pfizer stock react to the news? It didn't really move. And I, I, uh, you know, this is, I, I, I think this is, this is not a huge, uh, look, the, the, these, not these, move sales, the needle for the yeah, these sales are built in, right? We've U S has bought these doses. Uh, um, it's not a big enough population to move the needle, needle. And it's also not as though, it's not as though I think these people aren't, these children are never going to get vaccinated. Right. I mean, a number of months, I, I don't think is a huge deal for, uh, in the scheme of the hundred billion dollar re <laughs> revenue projection that uh, right. for twenty twenty two. Okay, I'm glad you went through all of that. Yeah, so, sorry to me to go for so long. No, no, not at all. I think it's very important. Um, usually, regulatory leadership helps to provide clarity, and for a long time, the FDA has been without a permanent leader. But that changed on Tuesday with the confirmation of Robert Califf as head of the agency. Tell us a bit about Califf and how the vote went in the Senate. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. And, you know, one of the most puzzling things for me about the Biden administration has been that we are, you know, a year into Biden's presidency and, you know, two years into a pandemic and we don't have a FDA commissioner, or at least we didn't until uh, earlier this week. Um, so Robert Califf, who uh, is is what was confirmed, uh, he actually previously served as FDA commissioner relatively briefly under um I think it was the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the confirmation was quite narrow this time, fifty to forty-six, um, which which is a thin margin. He didn't get the vote of four Democratic senators and Bernie Sanders, who's an independent. There were some Republicans who voted for him. You know, I think the opposition had in part to do with his ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin put out a letter a number of months ago um, talking about the opioid epidemic. Right, right. And, you know, tying it to Caleb's. Uh, pharmaceutical ties. Um, but he's in. And, you know, I think some of the notes out after the 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 vote were from Wall Street analysts were positive. I mean, they the, the analysts are saying uh, that it's good generally for FDA to have a leader and that the lack of an FDA leader has been cited among the many reasons cited, at least for biotech underperformance. I mean, there have been a lot of controversies. I haven't thought about that. It's a good point. 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's been a lot of controversies and uncertainty around FDA over the last two years. I mean, we've talked about Agilehelm, a um, number of other things have come up. And I think without a, a, you know, a permanent leader, you know, you don't really know what the direction is and, and what to make of these um, these issues. So, look, I think it's going to be um, interesting to see how he establishes himself and, and how, um, you know, how the FDA uh, continues to address all of the, the various things going on, including the pandemic. I hope you'll get an interview with him soon. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> just, just from a selfish baron's perspective. <laughs> so speaking of Pfizer, as we were just a few minutes ago, the company recently reported fourth quarter earnings, and it offered some guidance for 2022 results. results. Plus, you had a chance to interview Albert Borla, the CEO, along with the chief scientific officer, or the chief medical officer. What's the outlook for Pfizer, and what did you learn from the Pfizer executives? Yeah, so I mean, the, the bottom line here was that Pfizer said that it expects revenues in 2022 are between 98 and $122 billion, which is the most ever. That's obviously due not only to the vaccine, um, but now also the uh, what's called Paxlovid, their, their antiviral, um, $22 billion of antiviral sales and vaccine sales of 32, COVID vaccine sales of $32 billion. So the stock fell. And, uh, you know, I think that was because at least in part, um, vaccine sales were a three billion dollars short of guidance, but what puzzled me about that was that as as over the past year, as it's done over the past year, when Pfizer's given revenue guidance for the vaccine, they've only included for whatever reason um, sales they've already made for delivery in 2022, and not sales that have not yet been contracted for 2022. That's not how they handle other drugs, right? Like you know when they're uh, making their they're setting their guidance they're guessing how much of you know drug a b and c they're going to sell over the course of the year but for whatever reason i'm not sure i quite understand why but for whatever reason they're not doing that for the covid vaccine and the covid antiviral that's and, very curious uh, yeah and that's how they've been handling it for the last year mm -hmm. and they've been very clear about it um it seemed to me like that was you know that 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 the, the weak guidance did seem to be why the stock fell and yet the weak guidance was entirely due to the vaccine, you know, I think that the analysts are, are estimating total sales over the course of the year and Pfizer's number is not that. I mean, there's, it's just a, a different thing. So, so what, there's what some are, sort of misunderstanding here. I think so. So that's what I argued in, in a piece I read that day that, that the the um, stock drop that day was due to a misunderstanding potentially. And and Borla, the CEO, did say on, on, on the interview with me that they are still negotiating with various governments for 2022 sales, both of the vaccine and the antiviral. Um, so... You know that that number that you know the thirty-two billion dollar vaccine number. I think we could say is definitely going to go up, or most likely going to go up. Um, you know the the I, I the, the questions I'd asked on that interview, a lot of them were about the uh, the, the childhood vaccination, which you know the postponement had. No, right. Um, now sort of a sort of a moot point. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but you know that as as, as uh, you know the stock is is down this year as is much of um much of the market but it's down more than the market i think it's down uh 15 uh, 16 just uh 16 year to date um but it was up a lot over the 12 months isn't it yeah it's up 43 percent over 12 months so uh you know i think part of this is investors as they are for the other vaccine maker uh, moderna you know thinking about what the sort of new pfizer the post-covid pfizer is going to look like in a post-pandemic era? And that's a hard question. 
Well, the good news is that you get paid 3.2% in terms of a dividend yield to mm. wait while you figure it out. <laughs> so that's a pretty nice yield. I want to move on to Sage Therapeutics, a developer of antidepression drugs. Before I do, I'll remind listeners we'll take questions at the end of the call. So please type them in for us. Sage had some disappointing news this past week and its stock really took a hit. You've been covering the story. What went wrong and how bad do things look? Where do we go from here? Yeah, so this is tricky. You know, so Sage has this uh, drug they've been developing with Biogen called Zoranolone. It's sort of a new type of antidepressant. It's not an SSRI, which is the sort of standard of care antidepressant. Um, and uh, the idea is that, among other things, it would it would take effect more quickly. You know, the SSRIs often take weeks or months to um, to have an effect on 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 a on the uh, on on a person with depression. Zoranolone, the idea is that it'll happen very rapidly. So this particular trial, I think they called it Coral. They were giving it alongside a standard of care antidepressant, an SSRI, and um, they wanted to see if it meant that the drug would, uh, that, that people's symptoms would resolve more quickly. And what they found was that they, the people who got Zoranolone and not um, a placebo alongside their standard of care SSRI, uh, by day three, um, had improved more quickly much more quickly. However, by day 15, there was no difference. Mm. And I think when investors saw that day 15 thing, it, it reminded them of earlier studies that, um, while also positive, have raised questions about the duration of effect for Zoranolone. So the, the company says, uh, this was the point of this study, right? Like we wanted to show that we can make the SSRI kick in more quickly. And look at that, it, it kicked in much more quickly. Um, I think the market said, yeah, but uh, if Zoranolone was, was, was really great, um, it would have um, looked better after 15 days. It wouldn't be the same as the, as the people who got the placebo plus the, plus the SSRI after 15 days. So that's kind of been the debate over the past years, uh, the past year or so around Zoranolone. Now the company says they're going to submit it for FDA approval. They'll finish their submission by the second half of the year. Um, and, you know, it's really going to be up to the agency uh, to decide how to approve this drug. Um, there's been a ton of phase three studies on this. There's a lot of data and um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's now, now it's kind of goes to the FDA. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of an opportunity for a whole new class of depression drugs, a new type of depression drug. It's a lot of unmet need there. There's lots of problems with the standard of care drugs. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, investors clearly haven't loved the data they've seen so far. Um, so, you know, the stock it fell, at least last I looked by midday Wednesday, it was down like 16% on the day. Um, this is one of these biotech stocks that's had a pretty rough year. It's down 55% over the last 12 months and wow, 18% over the last year. And, you know, there was a lot, a lot of excitement um, before uh, around Zoranolone. And I think among some investors, there still is, but there are questions about its um, you know, duration of effect, among other things. As you say, it's a big unmet need, and it's really a disappointment on so many levels. Yeah, and, and you know, I think this is sort of a broader story here about, you know, um, CNS drugs uh, that have been where, where, where there is so much need and there's been so much trouble developing really good ones. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the company still thinks they have a really good one here, and I think we'll see what the FDA says. Okay, we'll be watching that situation. So speaking of disappointments, this has really been a heartbreaking year for investors in healthcare stocks. Many stocks are down sharply. The indexes are down. IPO action has waned. 
give us the big picture. I mean, look, uh, as you say, IPO action is is down. You know, the the area that's seen kind of the most pain within healthcare so far is 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 biotech. Now, we should say, of course, what the S and P is is down six percent this year so far. So it's not as oh, though, don't remind me, Josh. <laughs> so it's not as though like you know everybody's um, you know rolling in the green or whatever. But but it is true that you know the the XBI, which is the S and P biotech ETF is down 17.5% so far this year. The IBB, the other biotech ETF, ETF which um, basically more concentrated in larger cap companies, is down 16%. It didn't do as poorly as the XBI in 2021, but uh, it is doing almost as poorly this year. You know, I think we and many others had said that 2022 is going to be a year of recovery for biotech, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, and it may not happen. Uh, it's certainly a steep hill to climb now to 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 get out of this hole um and it amazes me because when you talk to people in the field they talk about a revolution coming in our understanding of biology so something i mean look i yeah look i think there there's a structural issue here there's a number of structural issues here I and mean, one is there's a, a lot of money in the private markets um a lot of these companies as we talked about before you know have have ipo'd very early stage and now there's just a, a ton of biotech companies in a you know trading on the public markets like enormous number it's too many for even professional investors to really keep a keep track of um and these are not areas where generalists feel comfortable or frankly should feel comfortable throwing around a lot of money so it's it's a it's a it's 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 a biotech is in a tricky structural situation right now and um that might not be the reason why it's down so sharply, but it is a reason why it's harder for it to come back. Well, it certainly explains in part the market situation, but it also suggests there may be some very cheap companies available for acquisition. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, you know big pharma companies that have a lot of money to spend, but so far you know they haven't really been doing it this year yet. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year to see how it all plays out. So here's one indication of just how bearish investors have become: some biotech stocks have market values that are less than the cash on their balance sheets. You don't find that too often. And it's not just a sign of investor pessimism, though. It's also a potential opportunity when you see things trading that cheaply. You recently screened for stocks with a higher cash value than a market cap value. I thought that was a really interesting way to bargain hunt and to look at potential opportunities. What did you find? Well, I should say that um, our colleague Andrew Barry did a similar thing in biotech about two months ago. I thought it was worth redoing because, um, uh, you know, I think, I think, as you say, it's a demonstration of how bearish investors are right now. I mean, I found eight biotech stocks with a market cap of over $250 million that are um, trading with the current market value that is uh, below their cash and cash equivalents. Now, and cash and short-term investments. It's a little tricky, right? Because um, these cash and short-term investment numbers are for the last quarter they reported. Uh, for instance, one company that made it through the screen, Bluebird Bio, uh, it's since had a big spinoff. So the the cash number is actually sort of irrelevant. Um, but there are a number of these firms, you know, one that jumped out is Atea Pharmaceuticals, which, uh, you know, yesterday when I did this, had a market value of uh, $530 million in cash and short-term investments of uh, eight hundred and thirty-nine uh, million dollars. Now, you know this is a company that had a um, antiviral for COVID that looked very promising, and then all of a sudden wasn't promising. The stock's down uh, nearly thirty percent this year. Um, you know, I doesn't necessarily 
the nature of biotech companies is that they do spend a lot of money and they're not making a lot of money. So, so uh, these, there certainly is a potential rational reason why it might be trading below um, whatever the most recent cash report was, but, but it does suggest that there are a lot of companies out there that are very, very, very out of favor to say the least. Right. I, th I thought it was an interesting analysis and it can be applied to other industries as well, where perhaps the cash burn isn't as great. Yeah, exactly. So one more question before we go on to listener questions. Moderna is reporting earnings, I believe, next week. Yeah, the 24th. Yeah. Right. Tell us what Wall Street's expecting. So the facts estimate right now is $6.8 billion in sales for Q4 and their um, estimate for 2022 COVID vaccine sales is $20.7 billion. And I would expect Moderna to lay out some kind of guidance for 2022. So um, that will that will be interesting to see. You bet. All right, let's go on to some listener questions. We have a question from Stephen about Novavax and the FDA and when the FDA will take up um, consideration of some of Novavax's treatments. I don't really, oh, Novavax, uh, they're, they're, they have a COVID-19 um, vaccine. That's yeah. kind of whole thing about this. Uh, I, I have no insight there, but I will say that Novavax just, I'm just reading this right now, but today they announced that uh, Health Canada authorized the vaccine. So um, there That's you go. the National Health Service in Canada? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we don't know yet what the FDA will do, but that would seem to be a somewhat encouraging sign. I guess so. Yeah. You know, there's been, yeah, yeah. You know, Novex um, has has had a puzzling uh, history and sort of one of the great questions of the pandemic is why we haven't all gotten this vaccine or why it's not available. But there's a lot of good reasons, but a lot of reporting, but uh, probably not worth getting into now. But um, yeah, I suppose that is good for Novavax for sure. Okay. We may save that for, for a later call. There've been a couple of questions about the long-term prognosis for Pfizer and the future of the company after the vaccine. Do you have any insights there? Uh, look, look uh, I mean, that's the question. So Pfizer, as we've discussed before, has... Um, uh, you know, right before the pandemic, 2019, kind of completed or, or jumped into a real transformation of its of its business, finished stripping all of its non uh, quote unquote innovative biopharma assets, and is now trying to you know live entirely on what it can develop or or, or buy or you know um, license or, or or acquire, as opposed to all the ancillary businesses that it had not very long ago. Um, and so far, that's gone pretty well with, with, right. with, the, the, with the COVID vaccine and the COVID antiviral. Um, but outside of COVID, you know, they still say that they they had set this six percent um, annual growth uh, re revenue growth uh, target, and they're this uh, over a certain period of years going through twenty twenty five or something. And they say that that's still you know they they can still hit that. Um, so you know, but that's still the debate around the stock. I mean, obviously. Towards the end of last year, people were really into Pfizer, and the stock went up a lot. Uh, past couple of months, um, it's it's been down, but um, uh, you know that's 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 what people are watching. Well, Josh, I'm watching the market action today and wondering if people are into stocks at all. But <laughs> <laughs> perhaps I'll take that up with your colleague Ben Levison on one of our market calls. Okay. So, related to Pfizer, we have a question from Hal, one of our. Most loyal listeners, is it appropriate to view big pharma stocks as stable, reliable, long-term dividend producers for income investors? 
Yeah, that might be beyond my expertise. Um, uh, uh, I think it really depends on the company. It's it's really hard to make a blanket statement across the entire um, sector. We may need to bring your colleague Lawrence Strauss, our yeah, that's what I was going to say, yeah. yeah, for that one. Okay, and Ludwig asks, what's the outlook for BioNTech? That's Pfizer's partner. Yeah, we did a feature on them. Gosh, maybe, maybe it was a while ago now. I th- this is a company that is one of the you know big innovators in in, in messenger RNA, um, and it has a really impressive range of programs across cancer, infectious disease. They were really focused on cancer before the pandemic, and, and that's still a big focus for the company. Um, but it's all pretty long term. I mean, this is a company that uh, has a you know one of the biggest products in the history of the pharmaceutical industry, but is in many other senses still, um, you know, kind of a startup, uh, early stage biotech. And and, and um, it's going to be a while till we see other products come from BioNTech, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've had a couple of questions about cancer and cancer research. And I know you don't segment your coverage by disease category, but who's doing the most interesting work do you think? And Howard asks, what do you think of AstraZeneca? They seem to have had a number of recent successes in oncology. You know, the thing about cancer is that there's so much cancer research going on in, in small and mid-cap biotech right now. And that's really where a lot of those smaller public and private companies that I mentioned before are are focused. So there's a lot of capital going there. Um, you know, uh, not sure. You know, the question is kind of how does that make its way? How, 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 how do investors pick the right ones. And it's harder than ever now because of the incredible number of biotech companies in the public markets. Um, in terms of big pharma, look, there's uh, lots of, lots of, uh, I'm not sure I have anything great to say on which of the companies are doing the best research, but certainly a lot of important research going on at, at a lot of these companies. Okay. We will, we will come back to that in a later call. I think we're going to end right on time today. Josh, I want to thank you for this Wonderful information, lots of good insights, and thanks to our listeners for your questions and your time. Come back tomorrow for a discussion of the online art revolution. Mike Steeb, CEO at Artsy, will speak with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz about the art market's digital evolution, trends in buying art online over the past 10 years, and what the future holds. Sounds like an interesting call. So thanks again, Josh. Thanks again to our listeners. Stay well, everyone, and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.